0: Hello and welcome to Things Musicians Don't Talk About with your hosts Hattie Butterworth and me, Rebecca Toll. Within our vibrant musical world, it can often feel that the struggles and humanity
1: of musicians is lost and restricted. Having both suffered in silence with mental, physical, and emotional issues, we are now looking for a way to voice musicians' stories, discuss them further, and to connect with the many others who suffer like we have. No topic will be out of bounds as we're committed to raising awareness for all varieties of struggle. So join me, Hattie, and guests as we attempt to bring an end to stigma by uncovering the things musicians don't talk about.
0: Taddy here. Lovely to be back with an episode for you today, and this time it's an interview with the most incredible, wonderful, inspiring person of just ever. Like, this one will go down in things musicians don't talk about podcast history. As I don't know, I I just remember after we had this conversation, I was texting Rebecca for days, like, saying, Oh I've been thinking about what Justin said about this. Like I've been thinking about what she said about that. Like it's stuck with me for so long because oh, I don't know there's just something so human about it and about Justin's presence in the musical sphere through her experiences as um, a professional horn player and then also now in a managerial role within the London Chamber Orchestra who you may have come across because of many reasons but especially recently because they made um, the move to remove their dress code um, which is something that really excited us and really inspired us to yeah talk more about that element to our lives that can often feel very restricted and so yeah this conversation was just like the biggest fresh air, the biggest fresh air, the biggest breath of fresh air I've ever. Sort of had like to do with just the general freelance world, and really thinking about like, is that space a space that is habitable for musicians? Um. So these are the questions that Jocelyn is constantly asking, and I just think we are so blessed not only to have her as a guest on our podcast but to have her within the musical world I'm just like oh so just yeah I'm done with the uh, intensifiers now just thought I'd briefly say as well thank you to everybody who has written us a blog recently we have loved sharing blogs and if you would like to write a blog please please do all the details are on our website and we just, yeah, we love, love reading your blogs. Thank you so much for them. And also just get in touch with us on Instagram. For any reason, please say hi. We just love, yeah, keeping, keeping in touch. Um If you enjoy this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us out. And if you're in a position to do so, absolutely no pressure at all but there's a link in on our website and in our instagram bio where you can go and buy us a coffee a three pound little one-off sponsorship if you're in the position to do so but most of all we're just thrilled that you're here to listen and we are just this is like the most excited i've been to release an episode so i just need to shut up and and let jocelyn take over so excited to introduce Jocelyn Lightfoot to
2: the podcast. Hello, welcome. Thank you. How are you doing today? Very well, thanks. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a while since I've been in Southeast London. I used to live here, so um I feel mm. like I'm kind of coming home. Yeah, I'm like
1: <laughs> I feel like I'm in a foreign
2: country. <laughs> coming from the north, I'm like the air is
1: different here. The coffee tastes different. Yeah, it does. The postmen are sky different. And the yeah. sun.
2: Well, mm. not today, in theory. <laughs> it's nice, and like there's loads of like walking and mm-hmm. running, and if you do any of those things, you can, you know, <laughs> it's nice around here. There's loads of parks, and it's you don't cute. have to be on the road. That's so yeah. I've heard. I would say I miss it, but I'm not sure that I quite go that far. But I did enjoy it when I lived here, um, but now I'm in the proper countryside. So, so. whereabouts are you based now? I'm in Northamptonshire now. Um, nice. So, yeah, which is, I did a very scientific decision making process of where we were going to move to um, by figuring out what the cheapest place in the country was to live when you put it on a graph <laughs> and the cross point is how quick it is to get to London and that's where I live now. That's incredible. incredible. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> on a specific line because it's the Wellingborough luton Airport line which is much oh, quicker than Northampton. That would be
0: fantastic.
2: Yeah, so right. that's that's how I made that decision. That and is like, like yeah. I feel like
0: that's a very kind of like musician <laughs> wanting <laughs> to be
2: out of London but also
0: accessible
2: yeah. thing yeah and much quicker to like Manchester and uh, yeah. you know that I was still a musician when, when we moved there so I could travel it it took the same amount of time to get to Bournemouth for example than it did for when I was living in Catford you know that yeah
1: nuts. let's get a little bit into you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, your official title is Managing Director of London Chamber Orchestra. Is yes, that right? although
2: recently actually we have, we are sort of changing it slightly because we've got two other organisations that we sort of run under the same umbrella sure. um, a record label and a horn playing group. Is that Three so Worlds? Three Worlds Records, yep. yeah, and the Guild of Horn Players. Yep. We are sort of putting them all into the Three Worlds Group. Um, and so therefore my title is slightly changed to CEO of the Three Worlds Group but it's basically the same. But
0: in terms <laughs> of sort of like what you do with the orchestra you still have a kind of managing director role within?
2: Yes the, the same of- yeah exactly okay. so so it's effectively the same the same role but just incorporating the other two organisations into mm. it. So how well. long have you been sort of in that role now? Since October, start of October Um so Not very long. Uh, Before that, I was working um, on behalf of uh, Martin Childs, who sort of has a non-exec role um, as a consultant. So that was my role before then. And the first week I did full time in that uh, sort of capacity was in March 2020.
1: Lovely. Yeah. Classic. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: oh, brilliant. So your background is as a horn player. Mm-hmm. And do you still play now? No. Nope. Not at all?
2: Interesting. No, nope, I have not taken it out of the box for getting on for three years.
1: Wow. That's cool.
2: Yeah.
0: Respect. And here we are straight into a question that you might not want to ask. i was just going to ask, is there a reason why you still feel you want...
2: Like a headshot of you with your horn, like?
0: Yeah, there's a really
2: good reason for that. Okay. I've not got round to getting new headshots. Okay. Although I now have, and I got them literally last night. Wow. Right. New headshots. Yeah, anyway, I'll send them to... Hot off the them press. To, so will, will yeah. we be able to use that, do you reckon, by the time, or maybe not? Yeah, they're ready now. They've been... Oh, they've wow. been. Yeah, okay. all, all my blotches have been removed.
1: Is it just, like, Photoshop the horn out?
2: <laughs> <laughs> that has been done on the previous headshots, um, on a couple of them. But, yeah, it's... A, yeah, I got new ones, which was really fun, actually, because I went to a friend of mine, Owen Schmidt-Martin, who's a viola player and also an incredible photographer, and I just popped round to their house and... Um, we just actually thought the whole thing was hilarious because I was like, what do you do in a photo when you're not holding an instrument? Yeah. So I always like, think
1: this is about singers and composers.
2: Yeah. Like you often see yeah. a
1: composer with a score or something and you're like, is that really... You don't have to have a prop.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do, you a pen... do you hold a yeah. pencil? So in the end, most of them, I didn't I didn't hold anything. I just kind of sat there awkwardly. Um, but then I was like, can we do some like, mug shots? So... I got a mug and sat, <laughs> oh. sat there with a mug and, and we did some really funny ones. And then actually I did have chosen one of those. Oh, as I that's know. good. Not, I just love any, like, any phrase with a mug seems to like just yeah. round it off. I mean, I, I literally spend my whole day with like at least one mug within like very close mm. range. So of all of the objects that I interact with on a daily basis, the mug is <laughs> is the main focus and the choice of the mug and then realising that I'm in a Zoom meeting and the mug I've got is, like, really inappropriate. So then deciding how I'm going to drink from that mug without, without you know, like one particular mug, which is like a rainbow flag around it that very, very clearly says, nobody knows I'm gay. (laughs) 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 So that one kind of gets like a sideways slurp. Is that the one in the the headshot or not? no actually no down. no owen's got much more classy mugs than me okay mm. yeah yeah another one is is my partner's mug which is says feck it sure it's grand <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it's not a one. business meeting
1: it, mug. yeah it's really depends like on, like on the other side well.
0: offended <laughs> i can't obviously my sister and i went to the other day we found two mugs, like one was the one with the man on the said wanker, and there was the one with the <laughs> woman on the <that> said wench. <laughs> and we had to buy them. Yeah. <laughs> She's got the wench one, she lives two <laughs> out. I love that. And we sent yeah. them to each other drinking Yeah, wench and
2: wanker mug. Yeah. Okay. So, no, so, you see, the mugs are really important. <laughs> they are. Yeah. an important part of my day. So. There you go, guys. Yeah. So, in terms of
0: before the horn was in its case, mm. before you took on sort of role of like a more managing musical. Thing. um can you lead us through maybe sort of your background with playing the horn and maybe a bit like your journey and education and sort of how everything's gone till
2: now yeah so um i like most classical musicians started playing when i was really young um and enjoyed it had some very good luck with teachers and opportunities and the area that I was living in having quite a a vibrant musical community. So um, although I didn't really decide that I wanted to be a musician until I was in my kind of mid-teens and I was incredibly lucky to have a teacher of the name of Tim Jackson who's currently a principal horn of the Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra. That was the first time that I realised that I really wanted to pursue it as a career um, because he was like mega cool and great and brilliant and inspiring and passionate and all those things just um, created that in myself. So then I was motivated to give up playing hockey on a Saturday and do orchestra instead. (laughs) Sacrifice. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, sacrifice things. Um, And then he got a job in London incredibly selfishly Um, and so he suggested that I would be passed on to his old teacher Lizzie Davis who is an absolute legend of horn teaching she also really inspired me and suggested that I audition for the National Youth Orchestra which I thought coming from a small village in North Lancashire was not an attainable thing for me in fact really embarrassingly I didn't know existed Um, until that moment I was like oh this is a thing So I auditioned and didn't get in until two weeks later after I got my refusal letter where they rang me and said, someone's pulled out, do you want to come and join us? I was like, yeah, okay. Um, So that was exciting. And then travelling down to Manchester to have lessons with Lizzie started getting really difficult with, you know, family commitments, all the rest. So I decided that I wanted to go to Chet's and everyone told me not to, so... I decided even more firmly that I wanted to.
1: (laughs) Why did they say not to, just
2: as a summary?
1: Um,
2: The classic line, which I think we've probably all heard in this room, of you need to keep your options open. Yeah. And I very firmly believed that I needed to keep my options absolutely closed (laughs) to give myself the best possible chance of actually doing it. We kind of came to an agreement that I would be able to go to Chet's once I was able to, and they allowed me to um, if I raised the money to go by myself. What? So, (laughs) so that was my first kind of like okay um, introduction, introduction into being a independent human being. So I did. I mean, you know, Chet's is incredible in that they give very generous bursaries to people who can't necessarily afford it so it wasn't it wasn't like tons of money but it sort of made me feel very responsible for the decision I was making and made me feel like I really needed to make the most of it Um, because I wasn't a very good student before then I wasn't very good at working at school or academics or homework or any of those things and yeah inspired me to work hard that was the first kind of real move towards okay I'm doing this I have to do this and and that was it so then music college I only applied to Royal Academy of Music because I was completely obsessed with Richard Watkins and Mike Thompson I was like I want to play like them so the plan was to audition there and if I didn't get in spend another year at church and try again the next year and well I was lucky that I did get in that year so that was nice and then studied there for four years Again, I was very lucky to be given a few opportunities before I left college to work professionally. Again, all of those things of, you know, really focusing on it. I didn't have a teaching job. I didn't have, I had a secondary job in a pub for my first year, which meant I basically didn't sleep. But then I was matched with a sponsor, incredible, really generous sponsor. And so then I didn't have to work. So it was like 100%, right, this is what I'm doing, Mm. morning till night. Um, and I wanted to at least apply myself fully until I knew whether that was going to work or not. And, yeah, just loads of luck, loads of lovely people helping me. Um, And then I was able to earn some money, so that was nice. And then I, yeah, progressed through experiences as a professional musician and did that for 13 years.
0: Was there a moment where you were, like, horn is staying in its box... I'm sick of this now, I want to do something else. You know, because what you describe, like, resonates a lot with my experience of, like, being a teenage musician and thinking, right, I want to keep my options closed, this is all I want, let's go for it, go for it. But, you know, when was the moment when you were like, this isn't serving me at all, like, no, there's something else here, maybe I still love music, but... But,
2: you know, when was the sort of but part of your journey? I don't know whether there was one particular moment... I was very fortunate to have a job for a year in Norway, in Stavanger Symphony Orchestra, um, as solo hornet. And I took that year as a kind of project with the section to, you know, just build on the relationships that they had and um, be a kind of positive influence the best that I could be. And I really enjoyed being that role of... Um, encouraging them to feel comfortable with themselves and with their playing and to be able to feedback to me with how they're feeling and um, for me to adjust my behaviour depending on how that influenced them um, and I, I just loved it. I loved that year of doing that and so that was probably the start of me being interested in more than just my own focus of how I play the horn. That kind of continued and I, I sort of Unusually for a horn player, really enjoyed what we call bumping, where you sort of assist the first horn. I enjoyed it because I really liked the responsibility of understanding them as a player, sensing how they were feeling, and doing everything that I could to help them to feel okay. I mean, you know, most of them didn't really need it, but even so, <laughs> I just kind of felt like that was a nice influence, and also I learned so much from a lot of them as well. Um, so then when I started then playing principal horn roles then I, then I could you know, continue to do that because often you're only there for like a day or maybe two mm. days with the section so you're like right how can I influence this situation to have the section playing the best that it can in this really short amount of time and how can you know, we kind of build a really nice rapport um, so I sort of enjoyed all of that when I came home from Norway my sister was diagnosed with cancer. And for four and a half years, she kind of progressively got more poorly. During that time, I I had to see her, obviously. Um, and there was no support financially as a, mu- as a freelance musician. Well, actually, saying that, there probably isn't for people in that circumstance in lots of jobs. Um, so that was a really long time of actually kind of, wow, I have to try and maintain this freelance career in a really difficult scenario. Um, And then my first son was born, and he was really poorly when he was born, Um, and I had to take a bit of time off work for that, and then my sister sadly passed away. So there was this time, sort of five years in my life, where working became less important than it was before, Um, and... I was like, God, how do you sustain this? How do you like continue playing? And like, my playing was suffering. I was like anxious, obviously, you know, and I had to go through various things. I did some CBT, like, really worked on how to control my own anxiety within performance and all those kind of things. Then I made some decisions okay, I'm not going to travel as much. I'm not going to do as much touring. I'm not going to go outside of Europe. I'm never going to go away for longer than a week. You know, all these kind of decisions where I was like, right, I'm going to, I need to spend more time at home. My partner stopped working um, to look after our son. And so, yeah, the really like difficult few years of, of trying to figure out how I could continue as a freelance musician. You know, it was a massive influence in my life, in, in so many ways, actually, you know, in terms of how I viewed myself and my appearance and what I was doing to myself as a human, like was I was I I had so many, so many self discovery bits. You know when you're watching someone, and she was 34, so I'm 37 now. Mm. She was 34 when she died, and when I was 34, I was like, all right, Mozart was as well. All the best, <laughs> all the best people die when they're 34. So I'm not one of those. Um, <laughs> like I, uh, I just. Yeah, just was, like, what, what's important to me. You know, you do, that massive cliche of, like,
0: yeah. re-evaluating
2: your life. When
0: someone's got their time limited. It's yeah. Like, what I'm doing with mine, is it really what I want to be doing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she
2: was, like, one of those people. which is like, a massive overachiever, you know? Oh, so in the same way as, as Mozart, she basically... She was, like, living life at, like, 5,000 miles an hour, yeah. being, like, way more intelligent than most people and like she was an actuary, um, which is, if you don't know, um, somebody who is a statistician for um, risk assessment. Sounds, oh. sounds really boring. But if you like stats, yeah. it's like, dream come true. Um, but it's really in, it's really, it's really intense. Yeah, certainly when I was 34, then I was like, right, got a- Oh do this just do it and you kind of really think about this thing and I said I went to CBT it was funny actually because I kind of fell out with my therapist because the first three sessions she was like but what's the worst that can happen which is like a big CBT thing and I get that what's the worst that can happen and then after the three sessions I was like the worst that can happen is my sister dies and she's dying
1: yeah yeah
2: So that's the worst that can happen, like how, like, you know, this is it, like, this is the worst that can happen, so how do I deal with this, and actually she took that really well, and, and, like, changed how we were working on it, but when you're faced with, like, worst case scenario, and then worst case scenario happens, it, it's such a massive cliche, but it really does help you realise that, like, okay, if someone, you know, says something to me offensive, like, what's the, in that circumstance what's the worst that can happen but that's pretty much it you know Mm, yeah it it totally changes your viewpoint so that was a big thing for me of just like okay fine I'm gonna look how I want to look and I'll do whatever I want to do and and a lot of that for me was also um, becoming less selfish um, and more accepting of other human beings and less judgmental of people um, just understanding that people are going through stuff, mm. you know. Yeah. So if someone is a knob to you, that you're not like, you're a knob. That you're like, are you okay? Yeah, or, yeah. You know, just like completely changing how you view other people's behaviour. And mm. uh, that was just, um, you know, I'm incred- I feel weirdly incredibly lucky, actually, to now be in a position where I've been faced with that and now kind of I'm trying to use it. To improve myself, Mm. um, without feeling scared of that Mm. or worried that you know takes away that like sense of failure that or that you could fail, you know, because it's not relevant. Failing is not a thing; doesn't exist.
1: No, I think, I mean, nowhere near the same extent. But I feel like any of our negative experiences in life with mental illness or whatever, we've also it's been definitely a turning point of how well definitely Mm -hmm. for me is how i view others and just general like worst case scenarios and Mm. like yeah as you say obviously not happy it happened yeah no wouldn't change it necessarily i don't like
0: the person i was before it happened like for me anyway yeah before i was Really unwell with my illness, like yeah, that's I didn't like, like because I actually went to Cheetham's as well. Did you? Yeah, and not, I, I remember. Not at the same
2: time as not me. Not at probably. the same time. <laughs> but
0: but yeah. I remember there a, was a girl there in sixth form who was really depressed a lot, mm. and she would often not come to
2: lessons, and she would,
0: you know. And I remember thinking, I don't believe her. I don't mm. believe
2: her. Like yeah, I know what you mean. Deep down, yeah. I was like, because you don't understand she, it. You don't yeah. have that you don't have that emp- you don't have the empathy yeah. you may have the sympathy but you don't have the empathy yeah and yeah. I was
0: just like oh she's such a pain like she never turns up she you know blah 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 and then I'll never forget like when I was going through my illness I would think about her so often mm. and I'd be like I understand you now like I wish I'd have understood so you back sorry. then you know? yeah, yeah I'm so sorry that I even thought that about you you know like
2: it's mud isn't it and I, I, like now I have this experience with my son you know mm. so much because mm. it's like he has mild cerebral palsy and um, s- s- other stuff. But, we, you know, he's seven, so we're still, like, on this road of discovery. But when, when, he, when he was born, you know, it was like, oh, my God, he's probably not going to survive. So, okay, let's get our heads around that. And then it was like, okay, he's actually still alive, so that's great. Mm-hmm. And then, so what is this going to turn into? And, like, it's like, I mean, where he is now, from where we thought he would be when he was born you know we are incredibly lucky that he's you know functioning in the way that he is i mean he's a, um yeah he's hilarious and funny incredible. and <laughs> like <laughs> you know he's able to learn that was you know a worry will he be able to learn and will he be able to have independence and you know and seeing going through that experience now and then seeing the things that he really struggles with and and being aware of how others uh have that in their life and the things that they're struggling with and obviously you know then seeing families who are living with people who have difficulties of whatever kind and then you know kind of understanding oh, I just don't know that I don't know what that's mm-hmm. like for them mm-hmm. and and accepting that that's okay yeah that you don't have to know or empathize to be able to yeah. sympathize. Um, and understand and just have just to see it and to look and to not judge and just relinquish that responsibility mm-hmm. of having to understand everything and um, mm-hmm. so yeah i i'm just massively grateful for those side of things and yeah of course i'd love for him to be you, i don't know oh, it's funny because cat and i had this discussion before he before he was born um not based on anything I mean it was his birth that that has created these things and so we had no awareness that he would have any kind of disability and we because you you're faced with these things when you have when when you're pregnant they're like if we find that your fetus has a some kind of deformity Mm -hmm. or potential disability in life what are you going to do and you're Mm -hmm. like Ooh. Wow, <laughs> that is not something that I ever thought I would have to like, yeah, you hear about think it about. Other people, and then yeah, you're like, oh my god, right? Wow, okay. So we're doing all these tests. What will we do? You know, if we find that there's some kind of chromosome thing or there's some something, some kind of disability, like what do you do? And I remember having that conversation with Kat and saying, do you know what? If if we have a child with some kind of disability, then. I will see that as, like, or we will see that as, like, an opportunity. Yeah. You know, to have an understanding or to to give them a particular life or whatever whatever it is or to adjust our lives in that way and just learn from the whole experience. Yeah. And, like, totally independently, we'd had that conversation beforehand. Um, yeah, obviously not thinking that that would then actually necessarily actually be the reality. But, you know, that's where we are and it's... Uh, you know he's just an absolutely incredible human being, and that's like the great thing about human beings is we're all different and all mm-hmm. incredible, um, and yeah, something to be celebrated, isn't it? Really, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. The stark reality of being a freelance musician is you are not paid enough to be able to maintain any difficulties in your life, and it got to the point where I was working to be able to afford to work. And it was just a constant conveyor belt of, like, work, 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 no time off. Just working, 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 working. And then my son, when he was four, said to me, um, I was like, I'm going to go away for a few days working. And he said, are you going to come back? And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Yes, yes, I'm going to come back. i always come back. But, you know, he is neurodiverse, maybe that added to his anxiety about me going away, I'm not sure, but ultimately I was like, right, this isn't working. From a purely personal point of view, that was the journey that, that I took, but from a professional point of view, all those things, all those experiences that had happened to me, and I was just thinking, all these other people are going through their own journey of how to work, and, and you know, God, there's so many things that go on while, whilst working that you just think they are that's a challenge for everyone um and I and there were a number of those things that I just thought do you know what that's not right that's too much to ask of people we are asking so much of freelance musicians and giving them less and less in return then it was probably about two and a half years before I actually ended up stopping playing where I was like I think that's what I have to do Because I can't make any of those changes as a freelance horn player. I can't influence anyone in a positive way as a freelance horn player. I mean, I won a few Mm. mini battles, like getting an orchestra to pay overnights for the section that I was leading in a situation where it shouldn't have even been a question you just get tired of fighting your own fight. You get tired of, OK, I deserve this or not even deserve. I, I, th- these are my rights. Constantly having to fight for yourself. And I just got exhausted um, by it and thought, right, what, what's my future? How can I really influence things in the way that, that I want to? So I decided to retrain. It was like really tough to stop actually not just like mentally of like saying okay that's the end of my journey that's the end of my ambition I mean obviously the industry isn't how I imagined it would be not necessarily in all negative ways but you know how you imagine what your life is going to be like it very rarely is the same so in some ways it was easy to to kind of justify that my ambitions were Unfulfillable because they didn't really exist. But then it's really hard to say, okay, I'm not going to be a horn player anymore because that's my that's your identity as a musician. It's like you you meet someone and and you say, oh, my name's Jossie and I play the horn. Like it's like that's how that's who you are. So I had to really like get my head around that. And then I just get kept getting tempted by work and by opportunities Mm -hmm. and by trials here and this that and the other. And I just it took me a while to eventually just say. No, that I'm done with that now and I had to just cut it I just couldn't I, I I couldn't imagine continuing both so I decided to completely leave the industry entirely and go into other industries and work there for a while and see what that was like um, but of course I had absolutely no experience or <laughs> anything at all I mean transferable skills go a long way but only a if point. The, yeah exactly yeah <laughs> so there I was working in like a food factory um, in the human resources department on minimum wage whilst studying um, all hours of the day. And I was like, God, I've given up playing the horn so that I can see my family more. And I just (laughs) locked in my office (laughs) all day long just studying. But again, you know, that was the decision I'd made and typical for me. I was like, right, I'm doing it 100%. And there's, you know, I'm not going to like halfway house it. I worked in two different places in other industries and just got experience and just saw how the rest of the world worked and studied for two years and then was given the opportunity to come back into the fold Um, so a little bit sooner than I thought I would actually I thought I was probably going to have to build a career outside of music much further than I did um, before coming back in Um, but then when the opportunity came I just thought yeah I'll just do it. Sorry, I was like journey. massively emotional. No, it's amazing. I very rarely talk about
1: it. so I feel like I felt very emotional yeah, and just very, you're so right in that every freelancer has their own battles. They might be to the extent that yours have been, they might be to the extent, but in a different light. And it's just, I completely agree that as freelancers, we are given less and less. And still expected to pour ourselves out on stage and perform to the highest level. And it's just completely unsustainable. And yeah, recently I've also been feeling similarly that I'm working in order to work. And it is just this, I mean, it's so cliche, but it's just this conveyor belt of just, okay, I'm going to my teaching so that I can hopefully do an audition here to hopefully get work etc and totally inspiring that you took that decision and we've been talking a bit about the sunk cost fallacy recently no. of that idea that I can't possibly leave this thing because I've put so much time and effort into it and it is my identity and all the people I know around me even if, yeah even completely. if it's the wrong decision it's still mm. like the hardest decision because of how many hours and how much money and
0: how many people have been behind you for that one mm.
1: Even so, from, an, from an outside perspective, everyone would say, you've got to
2: leave. Like, this is not good for you.
1: Yeah. Even but
2: if- that is, is not the case because, as well, I really feel like there's a bubble in the industry where it's almost like we justify our existence in it by saying that there's no other way so we are musicians because we love it and there is no other life available for us that would be as good as this one mm-hmm. um that's for me something that prevails throughout the whole industry and it and and I think there's a real danger of being taken advantage of because of that and so then you get this this real imbalance between management and musician where the musicians feel like they are being given the work in fact that is a phrase that ha- that people say i'm being given work but you're not being given work you are you are being hired to give your services so i need musicians for me to be able to do my job within the london chamber orchestra so i need to hire musicians i don't need to give musicians work yeah because we're not, that's not the charitable work that we're doing. Mm. You know, we have a charitable arm, but that's not it. Yeah. You know, I don't give camera operators work. I hire camera operators. You know, the, the the wording used around being a musician, being a freelance musician, being lucky to do what we do, and and it just opens up this whole world of of being taken advantage of. And that's really important to me to not look at musicians in a different way to all the other suppliers that we hire
1: it comes across very strongly that your attitude towards the the work environment in London Chamber Orchestra is a very holistic one and that as you say you're trying to make these changes from the perspective of having been in their shoes like you said you know you're not trying to make the musicians feel like they're, they're lucky to have this work. It's a The environment that you're trying to create is one in which they thrive and in which they can be creative. There was recently you did away with the dress code and that's been quite... Publicized. Visual, yeah, well publicised. Um, tell us your thoughts. Why, why have you done away with the dress code? I know some people will have read
2: about it, but some people might not have read about it. Yeah, so I feel like the musicians that we have that come in to do, you know, our work, you know, we're lucky to have them, right? So that's the way, that's the way I look at it. Um, They are all amazing. And I say that not from the point of view of me being in their shoes, but me being next to them and being a musician next to them and seeing what other people have done around me in those circumstances. I know that they are absolutely incredible. And I've been working now in other places where... It's not as common in other industries to have that level of professionalism and commitment and skill and, you know, all of that. So we are lucky to have them. They are individual human beings. We are a small group, right? So varying sizes, but in general, quite small. There are a few reasons why we couldn't find a reason to impose a particular dress code. Um, One is because if you are looking at a group of people with a lens of being inclusive and inviting diversity and acceptance and equality, it is impossible to ask them to all wear the same thing. Like, we couldn't come to a conclusion where we could say, okay, we're inviting this group of people. and they all come from all of these different places, and we want we have a responsibility to demonstrate to the world that that's the situation and so therefore, there is no one way to dress to demonstrate that and communicate that openly with the audience so that's one reason the other reason is because you don't do the same thing for the audience right so if you're if you're looking to mirror an audience which means that you are showing that you are welcoming that array of people to come to your concerts. You can't do that by asking everyone on stage to wear the same clothes or to look the same way. So that sort of meant that there wasn't really a reason to ask, you know, a specific dress code for that. So we're just constantly coming against these barriers of, you know, if you, if you ask them to wear this, then what does that give across? It always gives across an idea, it always gives across an image, whereas actually what we were wanting to do was remove all of those things. And so we could, there was, there just wasn't a good reason to actually impose any specific dress code. And then there's the other sort of slightly more boring aspect that when people are self-employed, there's an, an argument to say that it is not appropriate for the to ask them to wear a certain type of clothing Mm. Um, and that's something from my studying and and working in in different environments which you know I mean as a responsibility for me to ensure that my practices are in line with you know the title that I now hold in CIPD which is that I you know I have to practice certain things and I have to keep up to date with it and I have to make sure that that Every decision that I make or any working practice that I do is in line with that. So asking a self-employed person to wear a certain set of clothes and not paying for it, that's not that's not a thing. That's not appropriate. So if we're going to ask self-employed people to wear a particular clothing, we have to buy it for them or lend it to them or provide it to them in some way or give, you know reimburse them for the purchase of it. You know, that's like just very basic there are so many blurred lines with worker status which is sort of how we end up or how musicians end up being kind of clubbed where that that line is a little bit blurry um and there are so many things in the industry where it's just the way that it's been and so the practice that we're really doing with with the management in lco is just always having a reason you know why are we gonna do that and if we don't have a reason you know, take it away, um, or find another way.
1: And the response from the musicians seems to have been overwhelmingly positive. Yeah, say?
2: on the whole, yeah. It's really interesting seeing how people have reacted to it, actually, because most people have just had come to me with this just huge sense of relief, of just like, that it's just so nice to to just not have that restriction. On, or mm. to, You know, a lot of people don't really like wearing things like All Black, most people have sort of had that reaction. I think some people have kind of in my instruction on the on the on the uh, schedule that goes out to musicians. It's like really long. It's like two <laughs> paragraphs of, of like in-depth reasoning of why we're not going to ask them to wear a dress code. And so for some people, I think it's kind of like if they don't really mind wearing all black or they don't really mind having a dress code, it sort of maybe seems a bit over the top that we're taking it so seriously which I get because you know a lot of people are just fine with whatever they don't they're not that interested in their employment employment rights and, and how that affects them they're not that interested in you know they're not really affected by being asked to wear certain clothes and that's fine but I'm just very aware that there's also you know those people who are deeply uncomfortable with being um asked to wear a certain thing based on either their gender or any one of the protected characteristics or just to wear clothes that just they would never normally wear mm. in any any other circumstance. Um, it's quite difficult to feel like yourself when you're wearing someone else's clothing.
0: Mm. And was this decision, I suppose, how, how much was it kind of fuelled by your own experience as a freelancer personally? And did it have anything to do with the way that you felt sort of...
1: Restricted. That's it.
0: (laughs) Restricted in your, you know, ability to express yourself as a musician or
2: as a human on stage? Yeah, so, I mean... My experience, I feel like, is mirrored by... A lot of people I think it's not in my experience of being um uncomfortable in certain situations I think is 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 not unusual that my whole career move is inspired by a mixture of my own experience but also witnessing the experience of others so it's part it's all part of the same thing when, when thinking about it. I mean, everybody talks about dress code all the time anyway. Like, this is a conversation that's been going on for, like, decades. Yeah. Like, what on earth... How, like, how do we decide what everyone's going to wear? There's just motivation in every aspect of what I do from a mixture of my experience and everybody else's around me. Yeah, I, I mean... One of the hardest experiences I had in terms of dress code was was when I was invited to play um, for the last night at the proms. Mm. The women's dress code is a coloured dress. And I have, you know, f- my whole life, people have tried to pigeonhole me and I've constantly tried not to be pigeonholed because I'm just not particularly comfortable in any of the holes available. So I, I just kind of constantly fight have fought against that but there are certain and, and most of the time I'm like okay fine I'll just you know, somehow find my way within it but when there's a distinction between genders and there's only two available and you have to choose one or the other that's that was really hard for me because the two available is like a long color dress which that's not me or a tux or whatever a white dj also neither of those things are anything like what i would wear by choice um and it was it was really really difficult for me and i ended up having to like talk to a few people and say you know how do you think management will react if i go to them and say look i'm not really comfortable in either of those dress codes um and luckily helen vollum who is an incredible human being um was really supportive um and, you know, helped me to kind of say, OK, can I wear something different? I was able to wear something that I was more comfortable in. But even so, then you're different, right? So mm. you, you, you're neither one or the other and you're different. And that was like a constant thing. So if there was always a gendered thing and I would go in potentially with my hair in what would typically be known as a male hairstyle and I'm wearing all black, mm. then there's people like, why not wearing a tux? Well, because of my genitalia, <laughs> like, like I don't understand. <laughs> and then they how... get weird about it. Yeah, and it's, yeah you're I mean... the one
1: who has to go through this experience and fight for it and go to the management. And yeah. it goes back to what you were saying about the dress code in LCO. That yeah, some people are fine wearing all black or tux or whatever, but that doesn't mean that that means the status quo should stay the same. I, we were talking about it just earlier, and that it. You know, for the people facing these struggles in whatever capacity, they often have to put in all the work to change Mm. it as well, whereas Mm. actually often you need other people who are not affected by whatever matter is at hand Mm. to do some of the work. And I think it speaks volumes that, yeah, it's some people will probably still wear all black, but it doesn't mean... That just because some
2: people are fine with it, that it's then, oh, we'll just keep it the same. Mm, exactly. And, you know, the the only thing that we've been given in response in terms of a reason why all black is a good thing to wear is because of this idea of it um, not being a distraction. Um mm. Yeah, you can feel you fidgeting. Yeah, it's so difficult because I get it. I mean, I love music, right? Mm. I love music. My whole entire life is completely one hundred percent dedicated to introducing music, you know, orchestral music to a wider audience. That is the reason that I live and breathe. So, why on earth would I introduce or be part of introducing something? that would reduce that so you know it's very easy to say oh but you go to a concert to experience the music to hear the music you don't go there to to look at the musicians and it's like well then but you do mm. you are there to look at the musicians you literally are looking at the musicians so you know we can't we can't avoid you seeing them and and effectively judging them from just a human being point of view that's what we do right we look at things and we we instinctively say is this a situation that I am safe in so there's probably you know a lot of people who go to concerts and 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 they look at who's on stage and they think okay I feel safe here because they're wearing tuxedos and coloured dresses and that's what I was expecting and I feel comfortable with that you know fine but then what about those people who are like, why on earth would I go to an orchestral music concert when like, they're wearing tuxedos and coloured dresses? I don't belong there. So I, I, I'm not sort of interested in particularly in disputing the argument of whether or not it's a distraction because we've got to listen to everybody else as well. We've got to listen to all those people who are not... Co- well, actually, it's more important to listen to the people who are not coming to our concerts because they're, they're the people that, that you know, have a much more interesting point of view because they're the ones who are not here already. Mm. So the people who are coming and they love music and they love what we're doing, are they going to be alienated enough to not come to concerts because we're not wearing tuxedos? Probably, probably not that many of them, if any of them. You know, any, any kind of change is going to is going to challenge people and I understand that. And of course, you know, as human beings... We have, to, we have to process everything. But, you know, I am more interested right now in looking outside of what already exists and seeing what, who else is there and what do they think and why are they not coming. What gets me is that
1: this is not a radical idea, yet in classical music it's seen you know, as such a radical idea and there are so many little things that in any other workplace would be seen as so outdated mm. and so why the hell hasn't this been changed already and then as soon as you change even one like arguably small thing, dress code it's seen as such a, an upheaval yeah. in, the, in the comfort levels of certain mm.
0: people I think it reminds me a lot as well of a lot of, I suppose, we're lucky we haven't had exactly much backlash but we have witnessed a lot of classical music organisations trying to speak out and having backlash from that. And what, what you say, like, the main thing people want to say is things like, who cares? It should all be about the music, blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of like, I've always slightly seen it as though the musicians are expected not to have a life or a opinion or a identity. identity mm-hmm. And that the music should be the thing that's speaking through. You know, but it's like, if your life and identity is completely removed and restricted as soon as you step on the stage to do what you love to do, mm. then how are you going to be able to play music as, as
1: it's not well. sustainable. It's not sustainable, no. It comes back to the idea of the tortured artist that we talk about a lot, that mm. their music should always come first, mm. and that everything in your life should be sacrificed in order to protect this art form. Whereas... uh. Like you say, you know, you're hiring musicians in order to create. They should be in an environment
2: which they feel not only comfortable, but supported and empowered. Yeah, because also the music won't exist without them. So that sort of creating this anonymous environment where the musicians are are, are at the service of, of these composers and everything, and it's like, well, OK, but, but it does sound different depending on who's playing. Mm. So LCO sounds different every time we do a concert because we've got, you know, slightly different group of musicians depending on who's available or what our instrumentation is. And, and that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. You know, we don't want to listen to music that is played in exactly the same way every time. And if, you know, how, how do you justify that and how do you define that? And, and there's so many things through history that, you know, the way that, that we play music has changed you know, I mean, if you're going to sort of go down that road, then really you, the instruments that you play should be authentic to the period. Yeah. And that, and, you know, I'm a big, I'm a massive fan of, of playing, you know, instruments on, that uh, that come from the period or are modelled on the period that the music has been written. I think that's amazing and it's and it's a brilliant thing. But... It's only the instrument that is from that time. The person is modern, right? So the person who's playing it and creating that sound um, live now. and it's a, So it's, it's always going to be a modern interpretation of whatever it is that they're studying or whatever it is that they're performing. So I think to try and eradicate that, that personality or the, the sort of modernness of it, is impossible and it's unattainable mm. um, and also I don't really see a huge value in it anyway um, so yeah I think celebrating the fact that you know they're, they're living breathing human beings who have had a particular experience and have personalities in the same way that the audience does and that's something that then therefore they can share you know.
0: Yeah I think that's something that struck me a lot in from the interview that you did and also from the classical music article that you wrote is this idea that you talk about taking away the us and the them mm-hmm. of the orchestra and the audience. And that's clearly something that with LCO, like, I don't know, it, it just seems as though that is one of the main kind of goals, I suppose. And you're really concerned that when people come to a concert, that they understand what to expect and that they're going to feel welcome, or that they're going to feel you know, interested in what's going on. And I, I want to know maybe a bit more about, has that always been a goal of LCO? Do you feel, feel like they, that you've always kind of slightly stood out in that way? Um, and also, why do you feel it's so important that the audience
2: is on a level playing field
0: with the orchestra? Well,
2: I mean, ultimately, whatever music is, it's entertainment, right? So, if gonna, I mean, I know that that entertainment, like... We, we are providing entertainment <laughs> god forbid that we would actually try to entertain people but it's um, yeah, right <laughs> yeah, an art form um, but I mean if we're not entertaining people we're really not doing a great job so um, it's important for us to understand what that means and how people want to be entertained um, and how that kind of relates to what people want to do on their you know Tuesday night um do they want to go and to the cinema or do they want to go to the West End to see a musical or do they want to go and see an art form performed by anonymous human beings wearing all black of music that they don't know (laughs) anything about and don't understand it's quite a difficult decision so what why are they choosing to go to the cinema or go to the west end and not choosing to come to our concerts so that's the that's the real question and and the them and us um you know the only way that you're ever going to communicate with people is on their level that's like fundamental human being communicating with another human being it's going to be more effective if you are um mirroring the person that you're talking to um or you know, communicating with in whichever way you're communicating. So it's um, a massive priority for us. Has it always been? Yeah. So, funnily enough, we just turned 100 years old, which is very exciting. Um, and we've, we have employed Jessica Duchenne, who is uh, the most amazing author, to write a book about us. Wow. Yeah. So that's really exciting. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've never been part of creating a book before (laughs) and not only is it really exciting because books are like they're like a real thing yeah it's like an actual thing that you can hold in your hand um but also I didn't know what that entailed at all I was like yeah brilliant this is exciting how does that work you know so I had to discover this whole thing anyway she's, she's basically written it now um and while I was reading through the first draft before it went to the copy editor um you know it just massively reinforced what we're doing is is not new to LCO it's the same so it's the same as when Christopher Warren Green started his surge with the orchestra and they were doing these like incredible kind of rock style gigs at Hammersmith Apollo wearing like glamorous like Glitzy clothing, and the audience were wearing like leather jackets and had like crazy hair. And you just think, God, that's really cool. The difference then to now. I was talking with Chris about this recently. I mean, for him, it was a, a a real fight, a much bigger fight than it is for us now, because they also had the press against them. So everything that they did, they you know, it was it was condemned, and you know, what how could they possibly play this? Sacred music in a way, you know, with light lights shining <laughs> on the <mic> on <laughs> stage that's not specifically designed for classical music, and um, so really hard for him. But like, what an incredible guy he is, and and he as well is just fueled by this desire to welcome people into the hall and say, okay, you're here, great, you're here, come again, you know. And I love how. If you you, we when in the first concert of the season we did Beethoven's Third Symphony, Eroica and everyone clapped after the first movement, you know, and (laughs) and and he just sort of turns around and gives a smile and a nod. He's like, you know, the scowly conductor. No, nobody. It's like, yeah, okay, great, whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. Let's all just enjoy it and do what what we feel is right and. Most importantly, not alienate anyone from the room. Um, and human beings are perceptive, right? So if I was in that same concert. I was sitting near a, a pair of people who were chatting quite a bit. And um, I could very easily have gone over and went, well, do you mind?
1: I'm sure <laughs> you're
2: disturbing the yeah. audience. Um, but do you know what? I was like, they'll get it. They're not going to be chatting loudly all the way through. There's loads of other humans here who are maybe not chatting so much, maybe chatting a little bit, you know, they'll they'll see it. And gradually throughout the concert they sort of were a little bit quieter, but you know they I think at the end of the day we've just got to accept people um, and and not, you know, why would we want to alienate them or punish them or tell them off? I mean, God if, it's just it's just a a weird concept for me that anyone would be shamed for their behaviour in any sense actually, but let let alone in a in a place where we want them to be there and we want them to come back. Mm. Um, and is it really that is you know what is really important? And of course, if you've got someone shouting, then you know you you, you wouldn't you wouldn't accept that in the cinema. You know you wouldn't accept that anywhere else. It's you know the, it, it's the same. So. Um, not really doing anything different to LCO ever. I mean, back in in the... It's just the, the bones of the orchestra, the skeleton of the orchestra was built on, you know, this idea of playing music old and new, mixing programmes, making it really interesting, playing in different venues, like playing in art galleries, playing in museums, like bringing the music out of the typical concert hall environment and and just just doing it in a really exciting and entertaining way um but what we are being really conscious of is making sure that it's in line with the rest of society and the rest of Mm. like the world of industry like how do we compare to what else is going on um around us and so therefore you know that that will slightly change things because there's no point trying to imitate something from 30 years ago or 60 years ago 100 years ago because times are different now so how do we still have that same fundamental goal within the environment that we find ourselves
1: in lco it seems that there is a big emphasis on playing contemporary music as well um so you have this new composer scheme lco
2: new Mm -hmm. um and this year is it
1: the first year that it's running this year
2: Yes, yeah, since it ran like a decade ago, oh, wow. so it's 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 Phoenix year. Yeah, with Freya Did, Whaley-Cohen. Freya
0: was in it before,
1: is this right? No, no. so oh. um,
2: so Freya is our composer in residence yeah. this year as well, and LCO New is a part of the responsibility of the composer in residence. Mm-hmm. Um, Graham Fitkin is on the panel this year, and he was the composer in residence. That was it. The last time. I mean, so was, he, was, he was the sort of composer in charge when it was um, around before. I mean, a, a really big thing for us in LCO is this, this idea of building relationships. So not just hiring in a you know, soloist or conductor or composer just for a kind of one-off. So that's really important, which is why a composer in residence thing is really important, so that it's mm-hmm. something that we can sort of build on throughout the whole year. Yesterday, I went to um, a studio to listen to an Atmos 3D audio experience, which is the future of <laughs> audio, um, and it is like completely incredible. Yeah. Oh my god, amazing! Phil Wright, who is the the technician in the studio, was like playing a staff, and we were listening to all the like speakers. And we're like, whoa! This is so cool, and Issa Khan, who saw sound technician, was asking all these like mega geeky questions and I was like, that sounds amazing. What does it mean? You know? um, and it, it it was really cool. But Phil um just said it, said this sentence, and I was like, Oh my god, that's actually really cool. So he was like, oh, it's not really classical music though, is it? Like that doesn't make sense, or like contemporary music or anything. Like that that it's so irrelevant and it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. It's it's just orchestral music. I was like mm-hmm. penny drop moment. I was like, of course, yeah. because we talk about contemporary music now, but but contemporary music just means like music now. Whereas but. but you still talk about, like, Stravinsky in that category, but Stravinsky was, like... Definitely not now. ...in Paris 100 years ago. Like, this is... Like, it like, doesn't make sense to me. So this idea of of what what is contemporary music, what is new music, and then we've got all these kind of composers from hundreds of years ago on this, like, huge pedestal, and then composers who are writing now, and it's, like... Like, we look at them, in like, in a, in a different way, but it's the same... It's all the same, they're just writing music for orchestra. So I've been thinking about that quite a lot since yesterday. It's just a celebration of all music for orchestra and, and removing that idea that that you know music that is new has to also be challenging or music that is new needs to have some sort of academic understanding to to really get it. My opinion is that classical music or music is enough, right? So it, it exists and it is incredible and it is something that all humans can enjoy. Um, and so it's building that those bridges between what exists as an incredible art form and what people and what people actually want and what people actually need in terms of their life and their well-being and their entertainment. How do we provide that? from our point
1: of view. It reminds me a lot of, uh, my boyfriend's really into watching the Olympics. Mm. And um, I was asking him the other day, I was like, so how do these guys earn money? Like, do they just do, they're just incredible athletes and they earn money? He was like, yeah, like, and it just made me think that you're so right that music, the art form of music is enough in the same Mm. way that watching people do the same sports Year after year after year, and you're just marveling at how good they are mm. at it. Like, that is more than enough. There's no fancy like programming or yeah, no, they're just like sliding down a hill on skis. <laughs> that is more than enough. <laughs> yeah, for millions of <laughs> people. Entertainment Stewart for hours a day. So. Literally every morning watches the replay. And, and like, I, I think that um yeah, especially I I love contemporary music and uh it is a, a conversation I often have with my dad who's not a musician. And he really wants to come and see you perform, but he doesn't get it. Mm. And I think because he comes at it with this idea of having to get it, Mm. get contemporary music. Whereas, and I know that the experience of performing it versus observing and watching it is different. Mm. But for me, it's the experience of playing it and messing around with all these different techniques and just how it feels to play that music when I go and see a contemporary performance that's how I try and view it rather than trying to be like what's the context or mm. what does it mean yeah similar to classical music I think the music should just be enough it doesn't need the context mm. um
0: necessarily. It reminds me like of poetry as well because there's a lot of contemporary poetry that I did not understand. It sounds mm. so fucked up. Like it's so <laughs> weird. I and mean, yeah, I absolutely love it. And yeah. I kind of see that with contemporary music. It's like I don't get it. I don't have to get it. All I know is that it's really cool. Yeah.
2: yeah. And as well, like it is new, isn't it? Mm. So the idea that, that we should be really comfortable with it mm. understand it doesn't isn't really that relevant because the whole idea is that it hasn't existed before and and that's something which is you know the same of all art forms is that it's constantly changing and constantly moving on and and you know maybe there is a case to say if no one's getting it and no one's enjoying it you know is it is it something that we want to do Mm. because you know that's and it's it's really harsh for all art forms to have this process of development of like okay we want to move in this direction and 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 this is why and we're taking these things from the past and we're bringing this part of our education and it's all this and this and this and this and this and, this. and then you produce it and and sometimes nobody likes it and 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 that's really hard that's really hard and it's hard as a performer as well you know playing a piece and and then you know, people saying, do you know what? I actually just didn't like how you perform that or, mm. you know, but that's healthy. You know, this this is the whole point of the evolution of art is that you've got the, 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 the brains and the creativity behind it and you produce it. And But ultimately, people have to like it. And at, at the moment, we're in a really interesting point where there are audiences still who... Really like going to concerts that feel like they did sixty years ago, and that that's great because you know for them it's like that is that I love that, and and so therefore that's really brilliant. But there are also now not as many of those people, and so we've got to really think about how we're going to help pe- the next lot of people who who think I really want to go to that because it being the same as it was 60 years ago isn't enough for you know the next generation mm. because of me because of education of music because of music not being accessible for such a long time and it not being in the part of 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 the pop culture that people are moving into so that you know that's like a whole another world of discussion and, and and really important for us to, to really look at but that's a, a big topic
0: just if anybody wants to know kind of what you've got coming up if you could just sort of explain a bit about the next season for the LCO or the current season for LCO and like what's going on what can people come and experience
2: yeah so um, the rest of this season um, is really cool so next week we've got um, a concert with a world premiere um, which is by Nicholas Corth who um, is a horn player in BBC Symphony Orchestra, and um, writes the most amazing music based on the natural harmonic series, and also does some incredible like throat singing stuff. It's like amazing and Whoa. just so ethereal and beautiful and incredible. So he's written a piece which ma- which is a partner piece to the Britain Serenade for tenor, comma horn, and strings. Not tenor horn and strings. <laughs> Awful. <laughs> I was going to say uh, no, no, no. I don't know. Am And and we are incredibly lucky that he's going to be playing the solo horn in both pieces. So, yeah, like, totally cool. amazing. And actually, the piece that he's written, Inscapes, is for natural horn. So he'll be playing a natural horn for that. Um, and then we are playing a couple of the movements from the ballet music from Idomineo which is a lesser-known Mozart opera, um, but the LCO actually did the first ever UK performance of that in English, um, which is like amazing, I think. What an incredible fact. Um what a combo as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, Hafner Symphony Mozart thirty five, um, to finish it all off. Um so that's the next concert next week which very excited about... Oh, and Toby Spence is there. It's important information. So that will be incredible. And then the next ones we have for that is also um, amazing. So then we've got... Uh, we're doing Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, which, mm. like, you know, I just think is just so uplifting and brilliant. Um, and we're playing the song cycle from uh, of Freya Whaley Cohen called Happiness. Mm-hmm. So you can see how those two things um, combine quite nicely. And then really exciting concert we're going to do a, like it's called Marla unwrapped and Leah Broad is coming and she is a writer she writes books for waterstones they're effectively books that everyone can enjoy about music so that's nice you like that yeah so she's gonna come and talk to us all about Marla and we're playing Blue Mina in at the start and then she's just going to come on and kind of break the whole thing down and talk about Marla and his life and what the music was, you know, and the context of all of that. So that will be amazing. Yeah. And the last concert in the season, then we've got Pekka Casista coming in who, you know, obviously is incredible. Cool. Um, and we will be performing a world premiere of one of the commissions that is doing for us in the year, which we don't know what that is yet. So oh, that's exciting. exciting. Ooh. Yeah. So loads of, ri- I mean, just, you know, it's it's so fun. The whole thing's so fun. Every morning I feel like I just get up and I, like, open a box of toys and we're <laughs> chatting with everyone and we're like, what should we do and who should we talk with and who should we work with and why and what does that mean and how, you know, it's just, it's just great. Just brilliant.
1: And if people want to follow you on any of the yeah. internet places,
2: yes, um, where are your internet places? We're on all the internet places, okay? Yeah, um, LCO Orchestra, um, and yeah, we just recently sort of started TikToking. Ooh. Whoa. I know, down with the kids, yeah, apparently, yeah, <laughs> that's quite that's what fun. They do. <laughs> I think it's quite fun, um, and uh, yeah, just you know all the all the socials all the usual places our website has all details of everything coming up we've got LCO new as well kicking off mm-hmm. so you did ask that question about whether age is important for those things oh yes and um it's important to note that anyone who is looking to apply it is very much about emerging composers you know i changed my <laughs> career in my 30s and I would not have been able to do that if it was age specific so Mm. Mm. absolutely no reason to to define who can apply by their age in fact define who can apply by any demographic so everyone can apply you know if people come in and they don't have any experience of orchestration for example that doesn't matter it's if they need assistance to do things like orchestrate or whatever then that's fine because it you know we don't want it to be a a, an exercise in academics you know
1: amazing well honestly thank you so much for your time I feel like we could have sat here all afternoon and just chatted
2: yeah thank you forever
0: and ever and ever thank you so much for your honesty as well about being a freelancer and the reality of that life and and everything because I think it's something that especially a lot of our friends are at the start of, so it's kind of important to know, like,
1: the reality, the reality of it. All. The reality, yeah, and also sure. that other
2: people that are not just at the start of their careers mm-hmm. feel the same way about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. so, yeah.
0: yeah, thank you so much.
2: Well, uh, thank you for, you know, everything that you're doing, because, you know, the, the reality is very different to perception. And our teachers' lives, their teachers' lives were you know and are very different to what you in, in even my life compared to what people's life is going to be like now starting out as musicians um and yeah i feel a huge responsibility as part of the industry to make this sustainable because not only is it important to look after people um but the reality is that you know the industry could not exist and i think you know it's it's not it's not our right to exist we have to prove we have to prove mm-hmm. that we have to sustain it ourselves and and the most important people in our industry are musicians because without musicians we don't have music
0: want to
2: keep it yeah 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 oh god I love that you have to ask for people <laughs> <laughs> you need to like it's like what and if does